Thank you, Glenn, for that introduction. I'm not particularly used to that kind of introduction when I get up to preach in this particular spot. Um, it is a delight to be here. Um, I am grateful for the invitation um, from President Rob, and I am just delighted to be able to get up and speak before you today. I'm 35 years old. I have three kids, uh, Delaney, Finley, and Declan, nine, seven, and four. I have a lovely wife who's also 35 named Brooke. I have a house here in Cochrane. I have two vehicles. I do not have a dog. But I'll tell you this, I do have an RRSP account. Who here has an RRSP account? Some of us do. Maybe a Roth IRA or a 401k if you're from the States. Some of you, most of you are students and you're like, what's an RRSP? Well, it's an investment. We, as we begin to get older, we begin to think forward to the future. And part of that means getting things like life insurance. When I was in seminary, I hadn't given much thought to life insurance. And it wasn't until my daughter Delaney was born that I went, you know what, this might be a wise investment for my wife, for my child, and soon-to-be children. But we also began at that point, it was just $25 a month, but we just began to punch away $25 a month for each of us into an RSP because we knew the importance and the value of an investment. Now, normally when we talk about investments, it's, it's really easy for us to get focused on the financial realm, the economics behind investment. But whether or not you're like me in seminary or in college and didn't have any idea what I was going to do with an RSP, or perhaps you're getting closer to retirement and hopefully you do have some retirement savings plugged away, all of us have invested something into something or someone. We've all invested our time and our energy and other resources, perhaps into a sibling, perhaps into a classmate or a coworker, perhaps into a neighbor or a friend. We've invested our time pouring it in to others, hopefully drawing out the potential that we see in them, hopefully drawing out some hopeful expectation, something out of them that will lead to a better relationship, a better family, a better school environment, and hopefully for us that call ourselves Christians, uh, a better picture of what it looks like to live within the kingdom. So today as we begin to explore a particular passage in the Gospel of Matthew, I want us to be thinking about what it means to, to make investments, but then ultimately to see what it is that God has invested into us and what we are doing with the investment that God has poured into us. We're going to be in a very familiar passage um, in Matthew 25, it is the parable of the talents. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this passage for us this morning. Chapter 25, the Gospel of Matthew, verse 14, says this. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received, he who had also had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servants into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Am I right? Is this a familiar passage? Perhaps you've read it. I, well, I hope you've read it. Perhaps you've heard it preached before. So it's something we're familiar with. There's, there's a master and he is going away. He's going on a journey. And if we're understanding the context of what is happening right here in Matthew 25, we'll recognize that right before we have the parable of the ten virgins. And before that we hear about no one knows the day that, or the hour that he will come and the coming of the Son of Man. And then finally, after our passage, we get the final judgment. So our context today is a picture of really that return of God, that one day he will return, and what is it that he will find? How will it be in our lives when he returns? For it says that he will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. The first thing that I, I, I feel like we need to draw out of this for us to understand what this has for us today is to recognize that the man is ultimately God who has entrusted us, his servants, with something. An indelible something, a, a tangible something. Not something that's totally ethereal, not something that's ambiguous, but something that is concrete. And the most concrete thing that he has given us, the most tangible thing that he has given us, is salvation. Is Christ on a cross died for us, rose again three days later. Now we all will come to a point where we have to, to rectify in our hearts and in our lives what it is that we will do with that. For most of us that are in this room, I hope that we have come to a point where we've said that I will do this. I will confess that he is Lord. And I will believe that he is my Savior and I will give my life devoted to him. But understanding that most of us probably have made this decision and have done something with the name of Jesus. This powerful name that says that with that name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That we have come to this point. But what about for us that have already made that, that, that walk down the aisle, or made that confession, or for me, fell on my knees in my shower when I was 17 years old and gave my life to Christ? What will God demand of me and what it is that he has given me? Because he has concretely given me salvation. He has given me access to a relationship with him. We can walk with him. 
because of what Christ has done for us. But Christ has also given us other things. And as servants, he will demand something of us. You see, our lives belong to them. The entire bit of us, the entire life of us, our talents, our skills, even our personality, our character, our relationships, our desires, our passions, they all belong to him. For who is he? He is the one that created us. And beyond created us, he has saved us. And he has called us to be his servants. He's called us to be his children. Both of which are terms that the scriptures use of our relationship to God. Children, adopted, loved, and accepted. Servants who have been entrusted with a task. And it's this servanthood that we see painted at the very beginning of this parable. That this man has entrusted us with his property. But it's more than just our lives that belong to him. It's also our ministry. For many of us, we are preparing in this place, going to seminary, whether in the college or in the master's programs, for a future in ministry. That we feel some sort of calling to go and to serve God in some capacity, in some leadership way, whether it's vocational, bivocational, or co-vocational. We feel called into ministry. But let me tell you this right away. Our ministry belongs to him. Here we are at seminary. We have, I don't know why our room typically divides this way, but mostly in the front quarter here we have professors and wives and, and there's some mixing, but then mostly over here we have our students. But at the seminary we have a hierarchy, and, and rightfully so. You, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I know that there's Calvin and there's Don on the side, but you are the students and you are the professors or faculty and staff and there is a hierarchy. You are the pupil. You are coming and, and learning under these men and these women who have served God for a long period of time, who have wisdom to give to you, and there's rightfully a hierarchy. But, but I'm speaking to all of us today because all of us have lives and ministry that are devoted to God, whether professor or whether student. We are all servants of the same master. We are all children of the same master. And the second thing that I want to remind us today is that our master does have expectations. Really, that's what this entire passage, this entire parable is about, is about the expectations of the master returning and seeing his servants doing the work that he has called. And our master demands a return on that investment. He demands a return on what he has poured into us. And before we get too far away from what it means to be a servant in this particular parable, because sometimes I think we read this and we go, okay, well, what on earth is this master doing entrusting to a bunch of servants five talents or two talents or one talent? And these aren't small amounts of money. These are large sums, years and years of wages being entrusted to these particular servants. But who are these servants? Well, these servants probably in this particular context are our businessmen, our accountants, our people that have worked in probably what is a large enterprise under his master, and they know what they're doing. God is entrusting to these men and women, perhaps, these things that he has called to them. 
And to one he gives five, and to one he gives two, and to one he gives one, likely according to their ability, the passage says. But he entrusts a return based on this. Our master has expectations. What's really crazy is as I reflect on 2020, and it's 2020, and that's just a little bit bizarre to me. I still remember when the clock ticked 2000, and I was but a young 16-year-old kid who didn't know very much at all. Didn't even, in fact, know Jesus at that time. But 2020, why that has significance to me is because it'll be 10 years this spring, this convocation coming up, since I graduated from our seminary here. And it's crazy to think that it's been 10 years. I remember when I first came to seminary, I came up from Tennessee, and I'm originally born and raised here, but I went to school down there. I came back home, brought a Tennessee bride with me, and, and we felt called to plant churches. And this is what God had given us as best as we knew it at the green, green age of 21 and 22, that this is what God had called us to do here in this particular place. So we packed up everything and we came here. At that time, we enrolled in seminary. And, and I got a fantastic education and I learned a ton from these men and women who are pouring into you now. And I graduated in May 2020. And to think that it has been 10 years blows my mind. I left seminary with my degree, and I was planting a church. And then eventually, about three years after that, God kind of changed directions, and I went back to the church that was planting me out, and I became pastor of Tapestry Church. And that's been seven and a half years now. Sherry's giving me a face, and it's right. It's like, has it really been that long? Seven and a half years. For the first seven and a quarter years, I was a Ph.D. student. And I didn't know which side was up. But both my wife and I felt very convicted and strongly that that was something that God had laid on our hearts and that was something that we were going to do. And so this December, I finally graduated again from another seminary with my PhD. That's why my, the sign says Dr. Reed, which is also somewhat surreal. But it's been over these last month and a half that God, in, in the space and in the margin that I didn't have, has allowed me to spend a little bit more time reflecting on these last 10 years, on what I've poured my time and my energy and my skills into over the last 10 years, and in particular into tapestry over the last seven. And you guys, one of the first things that God just really began to kind of remind me of, and intellectually we all know this, okay, whether you're a professor or you'll be a pastor someday or a church planter is, is that the ministry that he's called me to is, is very much a servanthood, that I serve at his pleasure, that I serve him. That this ministry that I have is not something that I am doing for God. Like, not, not something that I, well, it is something I'm doing for God, but it's not something that I am accomplishing for God's behalf. But it's something, rather, that God is accomplishing in and through me as, as a conduit, as an ambassador but that he has given me certain traits and skills to pour that back into his church. I've always known that, yes, I am a servant, a servant of God. I sing songs about it. I've known that my ministry is about being a servant. But it's really been over the last month and a half that I've reflected on the fact that, that there are times in my first 10 years of ministry 
where I felt like my ministry was my thing. It was my thing that I was offering back to God, trying to prove myself. Trying to prove myself to myself. Trying to prove myself to those that sat in the room with me. And in reality, as I reflect on this passage and investment, and I reflect on, on these last 10 years, I realize that there are times where I've, I've missed the actual fact that it's all that I have is his. See, Glenn mentioned a while ago that at Tapestry, we, we really tried to live the principle of giving ourselves away. Um, that it's, whatever we have is not ours, it's his. That we are simply stewards of it. The money that we are pouring, my wife and I, into our RRSPs is hopefully us practicing good stewardship of the financial resources that God has given us. Us at Tapestry pouring into our leaders and sending them off is a recognition that the people in the room that I pastor, that are, that are a flock to me, that, they are, that I'm simply a steward of these people in their lives. That I may not have them, but for a few moments of their lives, a few years, perhaps even more if I'm lucky. But what is it that God has called me to do is to steward those resources and all of it well. They're not mine to build an empire on. They're not mine to build a legacy upon. And I don't know if it's my, if it had been my youthful zeal or if it had been my naivety or if it was just rotten, dirty sin. I'm sure it was a little bit of all of those things. But there are times when I've recognized in my life and in my leadership that I wasn't acting so much as a servant to God, but acting as a servant to my own desire and my own heart to build something up for my own namesake. And so these are the things that God has been kind of crashing and, and, and throwing at me in a certain way over the last month. And it's been humbling, but it's also been freeing. Recognizing that everything that we have is not necessarily ours. That they're his and that we will be held to account for what it is that we do with the calling that we have. But remember I said that it's not just our ministry, it's not just our calling that belongs to him, it's our lives. What do we do with the gifts and the talents that we have? For me, I've recognized in my life that there are a few things that God has just given me that I have no real right to, to lay claim that it's about me. One is um, I, I tend to be somewhat athletic. I love sports. I love running. I like my wife jokes that there isn't a sport in the world that I wouldn't sit down in front of the TV and just watch, and she's probably right. I'm, I, I dare anybody to come up with a sport that you want to throw at me that I wouldn't enjoy watching. Anyone try? No, because there isn't one. Oh, I let go. Pebble Beach Pro-Am last weekend. I know Dr. Don was watching it, maybe. No? Heard about it? Curling. Oh, I love watching curling. I'm not even joking. Like, there, there really isn't much. I'll even watch darts and poker. Like, I, it doesn't matter. Admittedly, I don't watch as much TV anymore. But if, if I was sitting there on a Sunday afternoon, which is a great time for pastors to nap, that's another lesson for you future pastors and church planters. If you're home, take a nap on Sunday afternoon. You need it. Throw in the golf. Throw on tennis. Throw on poker. Throw on lawn bowling. It doesn't matter. It is great. Even pickleball. I love watching pickleball. 
as I run around the track at Spray Lakes, I always watch the pickleball as they play in the corner there. But I recognize that God has given me this heart and a desire, but also an ability for athletics. Another thing that God has given me, um, for whatever reason, is, is I just love to read. I, I read a ton. And being done with my PhD has freed me to read whatever it is that I please. And it's been glorious. I've just been tearing through books at a pace that my wife just doesn't understand. But I love to read. Why am I sharing these talents with you guys? Well, certainly it's not about my ego and sharing the good things that, I, that God has given me. But it's a recognition that I've come to that, that these are some of the gifts that God has given me. Now I've got to do something with them. And God convicted me many years ago that, that some of these things are things that, I, can, that I, I need to give back to God. So what does that look like? Well, I remember when I was in seminary and... This is a great particular class here, and you guys got great friendships and stuff. But I think my seminary class was just pretty top-notch, okay? I mean, all you need to know is that Caesar Parra went to school with me, and you, you would know that it's got to be top-notch. But I remember during seminary, myself, myself, Jeremiah Pearson, Caesar Parra, and several others, we invested our athleticism into going down to Spray Lakes when it was a lot smaller than it is now and playing indoor soccer once or twice a week. And you know what's really cool about that? Is we began to pour into those guys that played soccer with us. Now, Ed Allen's not here today, but Ed Allen's son-in-law, Eric Orozco, and another friend of his, Cesar, as well, these were two Mexican immigrants that, that through playing a sport that we already loved and investing our lives back into them, God led both of these young men to Christ. And one of them is still here today. Some of them, you guys probably know Eric. And why is that important? Well, I, I, I reflect back on the fact that I came to Christ when I was 17 years old because Cochrane Alliance decided that they were going to do a street hockey league. So it just made sense to me that I'd use sports again to give back to God and to, and to utilize the gifts that I've been given for his purposes. What about reading? How on earth? Like, what, what's like sports you can do with other people. Like, I still play hockey Fridays at lunches, and there's, you know, 15, 20 guys, and they all think it's crazy that a pastor plays hockey, but I do it anyways. So you're always around people, but how on earth do you do reading with other people? Right? You sit in a chair, and you open your book, and you read it, or if you're me, you're running around the track, running 6K, listening to an audiobook. It's not really a social thing to do. Well, God a couple of years ago led me to, to start a book club. And I'll let you in on a little thing here. When I first proposed this to some of my hockey playing guys that didn't know Jesus, they thought that I was crazy. And they turned me down. And I was like, but man, you read. Like my friend Pat, like he just, he reads like I do. He just reads everything and anything and reads a lot and and I thought it just made sense to me that we'd get together and talk about what we're reading. Start a book club, right? If you want to know how to start a book club, talk to Elaine. Um, and so he said no. But three or four months later, in my persistence, I said, Pat, let's start this book club. Let's, like, let's do it. We were having a debate about economics at the time. And, and I was like, you know, it'd be really cool. So let's read a book on economics, and we'll get together, and we'll talk about it. Really dorky, right? He finally said yes. 
And so our very first book club was myself. I invited a good friend that I knew, liked to read as well, Glenn Watson. And I had two non-believing friends that came along with me, Pat and Steve. And we began to read a book. Once every six or eight weeks, we get together. First night, I made steak and potatoes and made it, like, made it up real well. And the rest of the time, we let either them order pizza or Glenn. I think he made huevos rancheros one night, and we enjoyed those while we had a book club. We went through six or seven books, one including The Reason for God by Tim Keller. And anyways, through this book club, about a year later, my good friend Steve Admison, one of our original charter members, he gave his life to Christ and was baptized at Tapestry. And it's because I, we began to realize that we had something that we were already doing. So why not find a way to invite others alongside us, to bring others into it and, and use these gifts and these talents and these resources that God has given us to bring glory to him and add to his kingdom. Now, oftentimes when we, a pastor gets up here and talks about using your resources or using your time and energy, it's to make sure that we have a, a full worship team and make sure that presentation is going well and Tapestry Kids is going well downstairs and, and all of that stuff is really important. But I also want to challenge us and challenge you guys here at the seminary that you guys have gifts and have talents. Maybe you guys just really love going for walks. And maybe you like part of, the, part of that solitude that you have, but maybe once a week you invite somebody to go for a walk with you. Use what God has given you for his purposes, for his glory. Use all that you possess. Our master does have expectations of us. That's what this passage is all about. And the parable is only about expectations. Now, it's not necessarily talking about the means for us and how we are empowered to do these things. We get other passages that speak to how the Spirit informs and empowers and encourages us because it wasn't me or the book club that led Steve to Christ. It wasn't Caesar and Jeremiah playing soccer with, with Eric and Cesar that led them to Christ. It was the Holy Spirit inside of us proclaiming and then ultimately going inside of our good friends and allowing them to proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the means. But here the expectation is that we would recognize that God has given us so much. And he's going to ask what it is that we've done with it. So what have you done with those gifts? What have you done with those talents? How can you use them today? I, I know you guys know that you have these in you. I know that you guys probably think that there are things that you could do and especially when it relates to evangelism and giving our lives for those that don't know Christ, sometimes it feels like it has to be something that we have to tack on to our lives, some additional thing. And now I'm kind of getting into Dr. Susan Booth's territory in her evangelism class. I'm sure she's going to cover this. But really, it's about figuring out what it is that you already love to do and finding a way to invite others along with you. But it, but it is also more than just about the kingdom. It, it's very much about the kingdom. But you guys are here as students. God has given you guys the task over these next, next semester, if you're graduating in May, next several semesters, if you have some more time here. And, and I, I just encourage you guys to invest your time in your studies. There are things that I'm still gleaming from my seminary days over 10 years ago that are benefiting the ministry that God has called me to to this day. Now, admittedly, there's some things that I didn't. But there's much that I learned that I still utilize to this day 
And that is part of us recognizing that our entire lives belong to him. You guys aren't on pause right now. You guys aren't waiting for the ministry to start. Now, God very much may be preparing you for a future ministry. I have no doubt about that. But I'll let you guys in on a little secret. I also think that God is preparing me right now for a future ministry. And Dr. Watson and Dr. Booth and Dr. Bergen. Wherever we find ourselves, God is continuing to pour into us, invest in us. And he does expect us to utilize those things for his purposes. At the very end of our passage, we get the confrontation of the master to the one who had just buried the talent. He said that you were a master who reaped where you did not sow. You were a master who I was afraid of and scared of, and so I took what you had given me, and all I could do with it was bury it. Hide it in sand so that when you came back, I could give it to you. And then he goes on to say, For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this seems like pretty harsh language. But it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. That there are those that have to confront the reality that Christ is Lord who have not done so. Christ will hold us accountable for how we've used our skills and our talents and our desires and our resources toward the end of proclaiming that message to those that need to make that decision. And so even though there will be a judgment for those that don't know Christ, Christ and God will also hold us accountable for what it is that we have done with the things that he has given to us. Individually, it's our gifts, our talents, our resources. But corporately, as a seminary, it's the students. This is who we, and I'm going to say we because I've taught one class and I have no standing to say we, but this is, as a pastor at the very least, this is, you are our investment right now. We are pouring out our lives into you, them more so than me, but I get to sit in a trustee meeting a couple times a year, and hopefully that has an impact on you guys. But as a seminary, we have an opportunity to invest, a responsibility to pour out our hearts and our lives and our ministry for you guys. As a pastor of a church in the CNBC, we as a church, and there's many in here that are members of that church, have a responsibility as well to utilize the investment and to be stewards of everything that God has given us. When I was in university, um, we, had a, we had dorms at Union University. This is the last illustration here. And in the dorms, we had a living room. And then off the living room, we had four bedrooms and a little kitchen kind of thing. And really small and kind of cramped and really old. They're probably 40 or 50 years old now. If you go to Union now, it's all brand new. Uh, tornado helped us to get uh, newer stuff down there. But we had the, this setup, four bedrooms, so four guys. And I remember my junior year, my third year of university, I got paired up with a bunch of fourth years or seniors in, in university. And, and these were some of my nearest and dearest friends. And I don't know what it was about this particular group of friends, um, this particular group of roommates, but... Like we had a kitchen, right? Like, but everything that we had in our kitchen was for everyone. It didn't ma really matter who bought it. 
we, we did have one rule, and there's some roommates here, right? Do we have any roommates that are living with other? Yeah, there's some of you guys here. I don't know what your, your situation is, and there's no judgment here. But we have this thing, we have this one rule, is we, we had a communal fridge, communal everything. The only rule was you couldn't take the last of something if you didn't buy it. And there's some inherent logic in that. So that means if you bought it, at least you got something. So if it's a case of Mountain Dew, you, you, you bought it, you're at least going to get one can, right? So that was the only rule. And it didn't even matter if you lived in our room. Our room was kind of this hub. People just always were in and always coming in and out of. And everything was just communal. And, and for me, someone who likes to give myself away, just, it just made so much sense. But there's a hard transition when all those friends graduated. Now, I, I became the fourth year, but I had some really good third-year friends, and we decided that we were going to room together. And I was kind of equally friends with both groups of guys, but they came into the room. And let me just tell you this. We all had our own half gallon of milk. We all had our own box of Ritz crackers. We all had our own cutlery, our own plates. We all had our own thing. We kept our snacks in our room. And, and this is just the way the room was, but I, I didn't feel necessarily comfortable in that particular context. And part of it, I guess, is, is that personality. But as I, I reflect on the investment, I reflect on the kingdom and what we as Christians do in our bonds together, in unity, in brotherhood, in sisterhood. I can't help, and I've, I've often chalked this up to just different personalities, and it's fine. But, but I can't help but think of a better picture of what it means to give ourselves away and to utilize our resources and talents for the sake of each other and for others than to live a life that is open-handed. With what we have, and not just the extra that we have, guys. It's easy to give away the extra. But the things that are even scarce in our life. And Mountain Dew was scarce. So my hope is that we would all utilize all of our spiritual gifts, all of our resources, all of our time, and all of our Mountain Dew towards what it is that it means for us to serve Christ and invest in the kingdom and in our brothers and sisters.